welcome back to the Audio DT with Reb T, the Audio Devar Torah with Reb T, the show where we talk about the Parsha of the week with some practical lessons to keep. The Shiur tonight is sponsored in memory of Leah Bat Yitzchak Meir. The neshama should have an aliyah. It should be a zechus for the memory of the neshama. We're talking Nikates here in 2020. We're talking the ending days, the final days of Hanukkah. Still my favorite holiday of the entire year. Has been for a long time, as long as I can remember. Such a wonderful, beautiful holiday. We're talking learning from the siblings in exile. This parsha comes right on the heels of Hanukkah. We're still in Hanukkah, in the last days of Hanukkah. We're on the seventh night here. It's about to be Zos Hanukkah, the eighth night of Hanukkah, the quintessential pinnacle, the reaching the, the top of Hanukkah as it ends the climax of it. And often, Mikates is a Shabbos of Hanukkah, depending on the year. Though this year was Vayesha for Hanukkah, oftentimes the Shabbos itself of Hanukkah is Mikates. The Arnsrul Chumash, in its notes commentary of the end of Parsha's Mikates, points out from Torah to Mima cam- commentary that only in this sedra, only in this Torah portion, is a mnemonic provided for the number of words in the Parsha. In this case, 2025. 2025. This alludes to Hanukkah, which usually falls in the week of Parsha's Mikates. On Hanukkah, we light a new lamp, a nair, for each of the eight nights. Nun resh, a nair. The numerical value of nair, nun resh, is 250. When you think of matrias, you think how to go about the, the, the numerical value of the letters of the Hebrew alphabet, Aleph is 1, going all the way up to Tuf, which is 400, so nair you have the Nun, which is 50, and the Resh, which is 200, so 250 for Nair. And the eight lights of Hanukkah then give a numerical value of 2,000. So we said that the Parsha's numbers and words is 2,025. The numerical value of Nair eight, eight times is 2,250 times 8. And then Hanukkah itself begins on the 25th of Kislev. That brings us up to 2,025 exactly. Thus, 2025, 2,025 is an allusion to the lights and the date of Hanukkah itself. Fascinating. It is especially appropriate to Hanukkah, Parshas Mikates, talking about the story of Yosef, talking about the whole crazy episode of Yosef and the brothers when he's thrown into Egypt, when he's sold and brought down to Egypt, and then he's in the prison, comes out of the prison, and then he comes to rule, which eventually reunites the brothers and breaks down Yaakov. But the whole story, especially Mikates, is especially appropriate to Hanukkah as we light even the first day's light, even though the jug of oil had enough for the first day without miraculous intervention. By doing so, we testify that our belief in the seemingly natural process of burning oil is God's will, like everything else, quote-unquote, natural, ordered by Hashem. 
as really everything is a miracle, as manifested by Hashem's will. A naysayer, or someone that's, that feels a little tentative to the story, feels a little bit um, skeptical to the story, might say, you know, it was all, you know, happenstance, it was all coincidence, it was all natural, it wasn't miraculous intervention involved, it was all natural. But Hanukkah points out to us that nothing is ever really natural. The whole story of Yosef and the brothers, the whole Jewish history throughout the Avos, the whole timeline of Jewish history, nothing is ever natural, especially in many cases. Everything orders in a certain flow. Everything goes in a certain fashion, in a certain timeline, and the story is laid out. Just like on Purim, Lahabdom, a, na- a person, a naysayer, someone who's, who's not understanding, believing the highest level, or believing on a higher level, thinks, ah, it's all coincidence, you know, it, nothing really happened. It was all, you know, this scene, listen to this scene. But of course, it's divine providence, it's pure hashkacha practice, how Hashem orchestrated the whole poem story. How Hashem orchestrates everything in our lives, everything in the world, everything every single day, and especially in the story of Mikates, how, how Yosef comes to power, how he's the dream interpreter, and it, and it, it is a saving, it's a saving line, it's a saving way of getting to the top of Mitzrayim, and that also explains to us how in our own lives we have to realize. Hashem is orchestrating everything. Hashem is coordinating everything. Hashem is the controller of everything. Hanukkah also points out we testify in our lives by lighting these candles, which itself is not a natural thing. Hashem decides that the oil will burn. It reminds me of the story in in the Gemara. I forgot where in the Talmud. I forget who the who the rabbi was. Rabbi Hanina Bedosa, maybe. But uh, one of those sages, you know, his daughter was upset. They didn't have the proper oil to light for Shabbos. And she lit the vinegar and, and she was worried. She told her dad, you know, Abba, Dad, Tati, whatever, I don't have the oil. I lit the wrong thing. Or, or they didn't have the oil to light. I lit the vinegar. And he says, the sage, the great sage response, he who said that oil will burn will let the vinegar burn or whatever they used will burn because Hashem decides what will burn and what will not. Hashem decides what will go about in the world or what will not. It's up to Hashem. It's ordered by Hashem. It's controlled by Hashem. It's no less a miracle for an oil to burn than for vinegar to burn. It just seems to us a greater miracle for vinegar because we're not used to it, because we're not accustomed to it. Because it doesn't happen much often in our life. Why is it such a big idea? Idea, such a big idea and such a crazy thing, Lahavda to see an eclipse, because we're not used to it. It's something that happens, quote unquote, once in a lifetime. Or we, we look for a meteor shower, we see a solar shower, we see the eclipse, we see a blood moon, a blue moon. All these things are so out of the ordinary, but even the ordinary is miraculous. It's just that we're used to it. It's just that we're accustomed to it. It's just part of our lives every day, but it's no less miraculous. And this is not only my this is not only me speaking, it's not my own idea. Many sages, commentators have said this way, way, way before me. It's just good to think about and good to say out loud. Even the idea of weather and nature, they call it mother nature, which is just a uh, ridiculousness. It's it's 
masking the idea that it's really God controlling everything. He might give it a name of nature. He might give it a name of weather. He might give it a name of precipitation or snow or whatever, but it's everything coming from Hashem. It's all controlled by Hashem, but the sun rises and the sun falls. That's no less miraculous than anything. Every blade of grass, every seed that leads to a fruit or a vegetable, every animal in Achas, Alachas, Kama, Vakama, Kavachomer, every human that comes into being in existence is a miracle. Just some things are so part and parcel to our daily life that we take it for granted. We don't appreciate it. We don't recognize how great it is, how miraculous it is, how wonderful it is. That's a lesson to learn from the Nikkei story from Hanukkah. Even a seemingly trivial thing is not really trivial at all. Even a seemingly occurring thing that comes every day, a current thing, a, a, a usual thing, quote-unquote, in our lives is no less unusual how Hashem allows it than anything else. The fact that we can walk to work, the fact that we could get on a train, could get in a car, drive the car, walk our kids to school, we could log online, we could work. Every single thing is a miracle. It just comes part of our habits and our routines, and we take it for granted, the roles of the different things we have in our life, the different things we do in our life. So we should understand that everything Hashem does is a miracle. We've talked about this many times on all the shows, but it's always good to repeat. And it might be more open or more hidden, but in general, everything is the hand of God. Everything is divine providence and everything is controlled by Hashem. We must realize that everything Hashem does is a miracle. Not only hidden and open ones like we commemorate on Hanukkah. Hanukkah has the twofold effect. One of them is hidden, talking about the oil, which was in the base of Mikdash, which was seemingly done in a natural means, which also reminds us of the idea how many times, oftentimes throughout history, Jewish history, and even in our own lives, Hashem may, might make a miraculous thing from something that's already there. They say, I don't know who, but the commentators say, I believe Hashem likes to do things in a seemingly natural way. So he'll make the Yom Suf split, but he'll bring a major wind to cause it so that there could be room for doubt, because otherwise there's no such thing as a Yetzirah, Yetzirah, and there's no such thing as working on our Amunah and our belief. There has to be doubt in order to strengthen ourselves to have better Amunah and to control the Yetzirah to be stronger. And he makes things happen. He brings a wind to do the locusts. He puts the blood in the water. He could have easily put the blood on the land. But he does it in different ways that there could be doubt, there could be room for the Yetzirah, for the Satan. That's the idea of a hidden miracle that comes from natural means. Also the idea of Elisha and the jar of oil, the jug of oil. Why did he ask her when he did the, the miracle for that family who, who the people wanted to seize the children as creditors, Lo'olenu? He said, go grab a flask of oil. There, there was only oil in the house. He could have told her to, to, to grab anything, and he could have made anything. He could have made nothing from nothing. He could have made something from nothing, but he wanted it to be something she already had in the house because that's how Hashem works a lot of times, seemingly done in a natural way, a supernatural thing. So he'll get the oil that's already in the house and make it ever flow, overflow into hundreds of vessels in order to show that. And that's why also when he revives the dead boy, he puts his body on the child's bodies, making it seem like a natural means, but nothing is ever natural. It's always a beautiful miracle Hashem does. And that's the idea of the hidden miracle of Hanukkah. We had something lasting as a miraculous means, but it started from something else. So Hashem let there be a tiny jar of oil that lasted eight times as long, but it needed something to begin with. So it could be seen as something starting from something that it could be something small that lasted. Hashem had the idea be there 
in order to continue because he likes to do it from something on some level the commentators explain again not me bringing up that idea but there's also the idea of the open miracles the miracles that are much easier to see and understand and to find like the 300 people the Hashmanam only 300 taking on thousands and, and destroying them major open miracle when you see a when you see a, a crazy thing where um you know, if somebody was about to be dead and then they turn around the next day and they wake up from a coma, that's a major miracle. But a hidden miracle might be, you know, you had an extra few dollars on your tax bill or you might, I can't think of them offhand, but sometimes there are hidden miracles, sometimes there's open miracles. We talk extensively about this in other places, on other shirim. But I always go to realize there are different types of miracles, but everything in our life is a miracle nonetheless. Hashem causes the hidden and open miracles, especially like the ones we commemorate on Hanukkah, the hidden one on the base of Megdash, which started from something, the oil and the open ones on the battlefield, the 300 taken on so many. But even lighting the candles themselves on Hanukkah, on Shabbos, or Havdalah, it's a miracle itself. The fact that Hashem causes these candles, causes the oil to burn, who said that a candle has to burn? Who said that oil has to burn? Hashem said. Hashem causes it. Even something as simple as mundane as that, or as that light, Hashem causes it to happen. We should also realize to allow our neshamos to keep living and burning bright with the light of Torah within us. And we must use that flame within us to ignite ourselves and ignite others around us. Take the miracles in our own life. Take the miracles around us, within our homes, outside our homes. The miracle of having a spouse if we're Zochem, of having children if we're Zochem, and even if not those things, the, the miracle of having friends in our life and family in our life and having jobs and homes and cars. Everything given to us is a miracle, really. Everything given to us is a blessing. Everything Hashem does for us is miraculous and intervening in order to give good to us, because Hashem is the ultimate chesed. Whatever miraculous idea you have to your life, whatever flame and light you have, which is a miracle itself in your life, you should share with others. You should give to others and try to ignite others. There are all these sparks among us. As Hanukkah teaches us, we want the flames to burn, not just for five seconds, not even for 30 minutes if it's a candle, but really for hours, two and a half hours if you have an oil candle or whatever, because we want the flame of Torah to burn deep within us, to be a flame deep within us, to continue deep within us every day, not just for a few minutes. Of course, we should start small and have it at least a few minutes every day, but it should really last a long time, and it should affect on an effect, an effect those around us. Use that flame within us, to ignite ourselves and others around us. I'm sure Yosef's children understood the idea of the miraculous intervention, the, the miraculous redemption that their father had. They probably lived with those lessons. They lived amongst a terrible culture, but somehow they were able to be those Jewish kids in exile. We're going to talk about that now a little more right now. The Pasuk says in Parsha's Miketz, our Parsha this week, in Parak Mem Aleph, Pasuk Nun. You know, it's talking about, you know, it's going back and forth, the stories, Yosef is the ruler, and then the brothers come, he recognizes them, they don't recognize him, maybe because he had a beard, or his hat was pointed down, the, the notes point out, the commentators, maybe the Ramban and the Rashi, um, respectively explain why they might not have recognized him, and he understands, now the dreams are finally coming true, 
and he's going about all these things, seemingly very harsh things to the brothers, but he wants them to have their tshuva, he wants it to be that they all bow down to him, they come down, and he wants it to be everything coming together. So as the brothers are going back, and then Yosef takes Shimon and throws him in jail, and then he puts money back in their sacks, they have to come back, and then Benjamin is, is tested of Yehuda's loyalty or whatnot. Do they still resent Yosef? Do they, will they stand up for a son of Rachel? Many different things going on in the story. But basically, in the middle, it's talking about how Yosef was in Mitzrayim, and Yosef had two kids. With who? Asnas, some people say. Maybe Rashi says that Asnas might have been the, the daughter of Potiphar and Aisha's Potiphar, and she might have been an adopted daughter. Some say maybe she was um, maybe she was a child that was from that crazy Dina and uh, and, uh, and and Shechem situation. And since Dina was a, was a, of course a Jewish lady, the daughter was Jewish, but uh, we don't know for sure who Asnas was. But assuming that on some level. Either she was a Jew or she probably converted if she wasn't, because, of course, Yosef wanted to have the two, the children raised in a Jewish manner. Anyway, two children were born to Yosef. Well, Yosef Yulat Shnei Banim. To Yosef were born two children. Biterim Tavo Shanataraav. In the time when the, the, the famine was still occurring, Asher Yoldalo Asnas Baspoti Peram that Asnas bore to him the daughter of Potiphar. So either she was actually the biological daughter, or maybe she was the adopted daughter, I'm not sure. But um, many other much smarter commentators, unfortunately, can explain that to you. But the key phrase from the Pasuk is Asher Yoldalo. To Yosef were born two sons unto him. Now why is that so interesting? Why is that phrase so so eye-catching? Because it really could have said, Asher Yoldallah, or it could have said, Asher Yoldallahen, or it could have said any of those, but it says, Asher Yoldallah. The Torah is not sparing of any words. The Torah is very specific, and the words it uses very often. It doesn't spare extra words, extra letters when it doesn't have to. Sometimes it only alludes to halachos. Sometimes it only alludes to stories or happenings under the surface. It doesn't even talk about the Orkazdim story, the famous story of Avraham being thrown into the fire of Orkazdim. We have to hear about it, reference it by some manners, different commentators pick up on it. But everybody knows that story since they were a kid that Avraham was tested, you know, and Nimrod wanted to destroy him, kill him, and throw him in the fire. That's not even in the Torah, but we it's alluded to. But sometimes the Torah uses words, especially by the story of Eliezer searching for the wife, and, and it's repeated the whole story because the sikhat of the avadim of the avos are more pleasant in the eyes of Hashem than even some halachos the Gemara explains, but that's for another time. In general, though, here, it says these words specifically, Asher Again, it could have said lahem, it could have said lah to her or to them, but it said to him, why does it say that we're born to him? And we're going to key in on this phrase tonight. The sons of Yosef, were obviously Menashe and Ephraim. Isn't it remarkable the Pasuk says we're born to him? Isn't it remarkable that these are the two children we bless our own sons by over all the centuries on every Friday night? Yesimcha Elokim Ephraim v'chei Menashe. Yivarechecha Hashem v'yishmerecha. Yair Hashem panav elacha v'chonecha. Yisa Hashem panav elacha v'yesemcha shalom. I might have mixed that up. Mess that up, but the general gist is that we're blessing our children, our sons, 
they should be like Menashe Ephraim, and Hashem should spread his countenance and bring peace and wonderful things to the world, and especially to our children. They should grow up to be a source of nachas to all of us always. I may have asked from Shana. But why Menashe and Ephraim? There were many children, many brothers throughout Jewish history, going way back to kind of Hevel, all the way up to Menashe Ephraim. You know, there was a Yaakov and an Esav, there was a Yitzchak and a Yishmael. Of course, there was Shavatim, and then we come to Menashe and Ephraim. These are the two children that we bless our sons by. These are the two children that were born to Yosef. Why? Why is that? So the notes of the Artsul Chumash point out in Parshas Mikits over here by Rav Shimshon Rafal Hirsch, brilliant commentator, that the Pasuk stresses that Asnas bore children to him, to Yosef, meaning the sons were dedicated to the ideal and ideals of Yosef not to those of the idolaters to whom she, Asnas, had been raised. As the daughter of aristocracy in the government, he was a minister to Paro, married to a foreign slave, this daughter of aristocracy, the daughter of the minister who was married to a foreign slave and former convict. Remember, Yosef was seen as a slave sold to Paro. He was a Hebrew, he was a lad, he was a youth, a former convict, he was convicted of a very serious crime in prison for 12 years. On, on some level, we may think that Potiphar didn't really really believe the, the charge, then let's also point out, because otherwise Yosef, by the standards of that time, even though Egypt was pretty bad in that area, but to do such a thing to a minister was a serious crime, they probably would have killed him if they really believed it, so on some level he didn't believe it, but... You know, in order to keep his position, he might have brought him to, to prison instead, but whatever. He was seen as a foreign slave and a former convict, and he owed his position to Paro's whim. Yeah, he was given viceroy, supreme ruler, ruler of the land, second in command only to Paro himself, but still, he's a foreign slave, Yosef, and a former convict, and he's married to the daughter of aristocracy. So she might well have dominated the home atmosphere in which case the children would have been hers, born to her, the Pasuk would have said in that case. But the Torah therefore tells us, testifies to us, that she adopted Yosef's spiritual and moral outlook, which makes us think that she probably was Megayer. She probably converted to, to be a Jewess, if she, not, if she wasn't a Jewess herself, according to some opinions. To be the only Jew in Egypt for Yosef, and to be married to the daughter of an idolatrous person, of a minister who was steeped in idolatry, yet to raise children to Jewish ideals is no small privilege and feat. An amazing thing. How many people were in Mitzrayim at that time? Hundreds, thousands, thousands upon thousands. Yosef was the only Jew in the entire Egypt. Yosef was the only Jewish person in all of Egypt, married to Asnas and then had two kids. So this is the only Jewish family in the entire Egyptian society. Egypt was like a superpower at that time. They were very, very strong. They were reigning supreme. They had the pyramids. They had much control. Everybody came down to them for food eventually. Crazy. So to be married to an 
a daughter of an idolatrous person, someone who's aristocracy, to be considered a former convict and a foreign slave, to be seen as a Hebrew youth, a lad, it could have easily been that she dominated the home atmosphere, that she was in charge and she was in command and she could have had the influence, even being married to Yosef, she might have still had the influences of the idolatry from her youth, from her parents, but no. Yosef was the one that dominated the atmosphere, the spiritual moral outlook. That was no small privilege and feat. The children remain the model. This should be the children who are the model after whom Jewish parents bless their children. May God make you like Ephraim and Menashe. Yisimcha Elohim Ephraim Bechim Menashe. Which is the bracha that comes up in my favorite parsha of the Torah, my bar mitzvah parsha, Vayechi in a few weeks. So the notes in Arzgos Chumash also point out in Parshas Vayechim, where Yaakov actually blesses Menashe and Ephraim, the two lads, the two boys, who, who actually were probably older than that at this point, not really so much lads, really young adults, maybe even grown men, depending on how old they were and how many, and you add the 17 years, because he lived in, in, in uh, Mitzrayim for 17 years, but regardless, he blesses the two boys with the famous Hamalach blessing, Hamalach you know, he says the Hamalach blessing specifically in the Torah. The whole Hamalach literally comes from Vayechi, which is fascinating. But the, the notes in the articles Chumash and Parshas Vayechi points out that the choice of Menashe and Ephraim as the model for all future generations is that they demonstrated the strength to maintain their Jewishness in the face of hostility and temptation of Egyptian culture and society. Jewish parents, especially in exile, especially in Gullus, have ample cause to hope that their children, that our children, show comparable commitment to their heritage. This can thus be one reason why we bless our own sons, our own children, like these two children, these two boys, the only Jewish children in all of Egypt, in all of Mitzrayim, which is a paradigm of a role model to live up to for our own children in exile, trying to follow the Jewish way, even in such an extremely lonely, isolated existence even with such bad influences around them and around us. It's, it's a beautiful role model, a beautiful picture of what to live up to. If Yosef can raise two children in such extreme conditions, Allah has kama v'kama, kama chomer, how much more so we must do so as well. We must do so with following the Torah and the Torah way of life with mitzvahs and chesed done at every turn every opportunity, and learning through our souls to let the fire within burn. Rabbi Shraga Simmons points out on H.com a second reason why it might be that we bless our children to be like Menashe and Ephraim, besides for the fact that they grew unto, that they were grown up unto Yosef, they were born unto Yosef, to his moral and spiritual outlook, and they were able to withstand the culture, the temptation around them, living out the Jewish ideals of their fathers. So the second reason why it might be that we bless our children, our sons, to be like Menashe and Ephraim, pointed out on H.com with Rabbi Shraga Simmons, that Ephraim and Menashe were the first set of Jewish brothers who did not fight. 
Avraham's two sons, Yitzchak and Yishmael, could not get along. Their disagreement forms the basis of the Arab-Israeli conflict until today. And you go back even further, Cain and Hevel for sure did not get along. You know, you know, Cain rose up and killed Hevel over the fact that he couldn't he couldn't take that his his uh, his carbon quote unquote wasn't accepted or whatnot. And the, the that was a crazy story, crazy situation. I mean, nothing's crazy in the Torah, but the whole idea is one that the brothers for sure did not get along. And then Yitzchak and Yishmael did not get along. The next generation, Yitzchak's twin sons, Yaakov and Esau, were so contentious that Esau repeatedly sought to kill Yaakov and instructed his descendants to do the same. And that Esau is the father of Edom, and Edom throughout history, the Roman Empire, not very good to the Jewish people, not very happy with their brothers, the, the Jewish people. The next generation was contentious as well. Yaakov's sons sold Yosef into slavery. So Ephraim and Menashe represent a break from this pattern. This explains why Yaakov purposely switched his hands, blessing the younger Ephraim before the older Menashe. Yaakov wanted to sim symbolize and emphasize the point that with these siblings, as with idealistic siblings and picturesque siblings, there should be no rivalry. There is no rivalry, which is a point I never really thought about before. You know, so we used to think maybe Ephraim over Menashe because he had greater descendants and greater people coming from him. But in general here, this point is really a wonderful point to realize no sibling rivalry. Our Jewish brothers and sisters are our siblings, are our cousins, are our literal siblings, and we should care for them as siblings. There should be no sibling rivalry. There should be only wonderful love for one another, baseless love, ahavad chinam, love where we only have good things for one another. We only have good thoughts for one another. We have only good looking out for one another, and we only care for one another in every which way possible. We want to take care of one another, look out for one another in every which way we can. We want to make sure that we take care of each other in every which way possible. The idea, the best bracha of looking out for one another, for looking out for siblings, for taking care of siblings, is the idea that it says in the Tehillim, that it says, that David Amalek points out, David Amalek says to us the wonderful idea of Shevet Achim Gam Yachad, that wonderful Pasuk, the wonderful ideal where we talk about Shevet Achim Gam Yachad. There is no greater blessing than peace among siblings. What do we want as parents? What do we want? We want our children to get along. We want our children to be best friends. We want our children to give us nachas and to care for each other and to hang out with each other. Parents say often, my favorite thing is when all my children come together and hang out together. It gives me supreme nachas and supreme enjoyment. There's no greater blessing than peace among siblings. The words of King David ring so true. How good and pleasant is it for brothers to sit peacefully together. That comes from Tehillim. 133, that comes from Kuf Gimel, really 133, you know, it comes from Kuf Lamed Gimel, excuse me. It is with this thought that parents bless their children today.
Thus, these two children, Menashe and Ephraim, were the paradigm of how to try to live in Gullus, in exile, with our Jew Jewish brethren today, especially how we should try to get along with our brothers and sisters in the Jewish nation, try to withstand the temptation of the culture and the society around us. So Menashe and Ephraim teach us the lessons of how to stand up to the to the temptation around us, how to stand up to the evil around us, how to live a miraculous life, really miraculous for them to be able to withstand such craziness around them by having such Jewishness in the face of such adversity, understanding that their own father led a miraculous life going from slave to ruling the whole land, understanding how to live in harmony, taking care of one another, looking out for one another. Chabad.org points out from the teachings of the Lubavitcher Rebbe, in Gullus, in exile, a person is deprived of his home, quote-unquote, of the environment that preserves his faith, nourishes his growth, and spurs his achievements. But precisely because it deprives him of the support of his natural environment, the state of Gullus compels the person to turn to the inner reaches of his soul and extract from there reserves of commitment and determination never tapped in more tranquil times. This is one positive function of Gullus, one positive aspect of Gullus. In addition, exile broadens a person's horizons, bringing him in contact with things and circumstances he never would have encountered at home. Many of these are negative things and circumstances, contrary to the values of his homeland and tradition, especially like Menashe and Ephraim had to deal with in Egypt, surrounded by such such averse to Torah ideals, I'm sure, but everything in God's world possesses a positive potential. When a person learns to resist and reject the negative aspects of these alien things, he can then redeem the sparks of holiness they harbor at their core by utilizing their essence toward good and godly ends. Yosef in Mitzrayim experienced these two stages in the positive exploitation of Gullus in naming his first son Menashe, quote-unquote forgetting. Yosef referred to his struggles in an environment intent on eradicating all memory of home and roots, and how his battle against forgetting and disconnection uncovered his deepest potentials. His second son Ephraim, so named, quote-unquote, because God has caused me to be fruitful in the land of my affliction, understanding that Gullus is not the end, understanding Gullus is not really where we're supposed to be, a land of affliction, even though he was second in command, so, so powerful as a viceroy, still realized it was affliction, it wasn't Eretz Yisrael, it wasn't the real place to live and be. But understanding that he named his son for this to be fruitful in the land of my affliction represents the second dividend of Gullus, the manner in which the land of affliction itself is exploited as a source of growth and productivity. The idea also of Hanukkah is to bring light to the darkness of the world around us, to exploit for the good the land around us, the exile around us, being put in a situation, in a circumstance, in a land where otherwise we might not have found such things. That's why we may, may be still in Gullus and we're living in Gullus. Maybe a lot of things we have to be accomplished in Gullus before we can make it to Israel. We have to bring light to exile, to Gullus. We also have to remember we need to get along with our own brothers and sisters in our Jewish faith regardless of level or, or affiliation. Ephraim and Menashe quintessize this, if that's not a word that I'm coining it. They, they 
perfectly show this. They finally got along, these two brothers. All of us, with all of our brothers or sisters in the Jewish faith, in all of humanity in, ge in general, we should get along with. We have to have ahavat chinam, baseless love for all Jews and human, humans alike to rebuild the third Beit HaMikdash, the third Beit HaMikdash, as the second was destroyed due to sinachinam, baseless hate. In order to fix that, in every generation that the base of Megdash wasn't rebuilt, it's as if it's destroyed again. That means that Sinachinam is still a problem if the base of Megdash wasn't rebuilt by definition. So the solution might be, as commentators, sages have said before me, maybe even the Chavz Chaim, that we need to have Ahavat Chinam, baseless love. Just love those around us just for the sake of them being our brothers and sisters. We need to stand up, withstand the false allure of the Gauls around us, just like Ephraim and Menashe did. We need to avoid the temptation and maintain integrity as Menashe and Ephraim did, even without anyone else around to help them besides their own father. They were the only Jewish family. Their mother was probably a convert, or even if she wasn't, she didn't have the upbringing that Yosef did. Really, they only turned to their father. But we, Allah has come of Allah have so much more support, so much more Torah, so much more Jewry around us, how much more so we should be doing and trying to withstand society and culture and the terrible negative influences and try to ignite the lights of everyone around us. Remember, we are not, quote-unquote, home in exile. We are not, quote-unquote, home in Gullus. We are not living in our land. We're not living where we're supposed to be. Don't get too comfortable here. Don't get too settled here. Don't spend too much money here on a home, on a car. It's not where we're supposed to be. I joke with my wife often saying, maybe we got excise house with excise money because maybe we're not supposed to spend too much money on a home. I'd love to spend a ton of money on a home in Israel where it's supposed to be our real home, our permanent home where we could really live. Maybe then I'll spend X amount if Hashem gives it to me. Maybe that's where we're supposed to spend a lot more money on a home and whatnot to really and delve ourselves, to really root ourselves, because that's where we're supposed to be. We're really strangers to this land. By being a stranger in this land, we need to bring something to this land. We must light the way and kindle and ignite the sparks of those around us, especially lost Jews or not yet observant or unaffiliated, really read, not yet inspired Jews. Maybe on some level, we are stuck in exile. We're stuck in in Gaulus at this moment specifically because Hashem wants us to be tested, to be stretched to the limit, to fight all the influences around us and still find ways to inspire and ignite. As we are still in Hanukkah and the flames still burn, we should make sure our own flames are still kindled and sparked and to ignite the spark of those around us. One of the many aspects of life is to take those things around us, especially Jewish life, and elevate them to the good. Elevate them to Torah, to mitzvahs, to take the mundane and elevate it to the spiritual. That's the whole idea we mention often on all the shows, to elevate the mundane to the spiritual, to take the Gashmi and elevate it to the Ruchani to take something that's materialistic and to elevate to a spiritual realm. For example, such as by saying brachot over wine, to take a physical drink and make it spiritual and holy. In all manners of our life, in all manners of our life, especially in exile, we have the opportunity to do so. Take your home, for instance. Is it used for Torah, for chesed and mitzvahs? 
Do you host others, not talking about crazy 2020 times, but in general, do you have Torah functions, Torah events? Do you make your home Torah-centric? Do you ever host a chesed event or shidduch meeting or host newcomers looking at your community? Do you use your kitchen for mitzvahs to cook for others, to help others who need it? Do you make care packages or items and send them out to others? Are you involved in listening to Torah and Torah music, learning Torah, reading Torah in your own home? It doesn't have to be anything crazy big. You could start small, a little bit at a time. Host someone for lunch, again, not in crazy 2020 times. Cook a meal for someone who needs it or etc. Anything of the like. Also take your car, for instance. What do you listen to in the car? What do you drive in the car? Where do you drive? Who do you drive in your own car? Do you know that on some level, Achnasus Orchem might be even driving someone somewhere, even if it's a co-worker, to the same job as you, same place as you, that needs a ride? What about listening? What do you listen to in the car? What about listening to Jewish radio or Jewish music or Jewish podcasts or shirim or Jewish audiobooks on the road? Especially in exile, lifting up the mundane of the car ride can be done. Also, finally, take your phone or other items or other materialistic aspects we are given by Hashem. Smartphone is a brilliant invention alongside the internet, the PC, cell phone, etc. The, 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 the iPod and the like brought to the world by Hashem. But what do we use the phone for? Is it just for texting or WhatsApp? And again, texting WhatsApp could be fantastic. There are Shiram groups and there are Chesed groups and Tehillim groups. But what do we use the phone for? Do we elevate it? Do we learn from the Freiman Menashe to take around us and use it for wonderful purposes, miraculous purposes? Hashem wants us to use it to bring Torah around. Do we stand up to the culture and society around us? Do we listen to Shiorm or watch Torah videos or read Torah articles and the like on the phone? We must realize how to live in this Golis, especially from the prime example of Menashe and Ephraim. Menashe and Ephraim were born to Yosef, unto Yosef. We bless our children like Ephraim and Menashe because they lived among such crazy societies, such craziness around them, and they were able to live with each other in harmony and in peace. All of us, all of our existence, even if you're living currently in the land of Israel, is still somewhat Golis. Even in Israel, it's still somewhat Gullus, especially if you're not in Israel, it's Gullus for sure. Mashiach and the third base of English has not come yet. It should really come today. Spiel in our days, we should be Zochem. We must realize to properly love our Jewish brothers and sisters and humanity in general and withstand the pressures of the society around us. We must elevate all aspects of our lives to Torah and mitzvahs with chesed using the wonderful creations and inventions Hashem gave us. If we do so, we can maybe finally merit the true light of Hashem, not just the light of the candles of Hanukkah and the light of the candles on Shabbat, but the true light of Hashem, the true light of Mashiach, and the true flames of the third Beis HaMikdash may be speedily in our days today. This has been the Audio DT with Reb T. Join us next time, God willing, as we talk some practical lessons of the week from the Parsha of the week with some practical aspects to keep. And I am your host, Reb T.